How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as church is the most vocal political voice against Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church's concern is being a good American they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy Today, our guest is Dr. Drew Hart. And uh, Dr. Hart is a public theologian and a professor of theology at Messiah University. He's won multiple awards for peacemaking. He attained his MDiv with an urban concentration from Missio Seminary and his PhD in theology and ethics from Lutheran Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Other places said he's a sought-after speaker. Is that are you a sought-after speaker? Is that how they describe you nowadays? You've changed yes, so much, bro, from when I knew you back then. <laughs> I know. He's a yeah. sought-after speaker at conferences, campuses, and churches across the United States and Canada. His first book is called The Trouble I've Seen: Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And he has a new book coming out September 1st called Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Dr. Hart, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Kevin. This is, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm glad to be connected with you again. Yeah, man. I'm look, I've been looking forward to this. Um, normally, the premise for this show each week is if the church needs therapy, then each week it's as if the church is going to therapy and it's like, Hey, what's a new presenting issue we're going to talk about this week. And we do that because people go to therapy. Therapy is not a pejorative. It's not a shaming thing. Therapy is we want to grow. We want to change. We know we need help. We know there's things we need to let go of, but there's also, we go to therapy because we know there has to be another way forward. So we bring up a different issue each week. Normally, it's one episode. Last week, I posted my first episode on the church and Donald Trump. And when I prepared for that, I thought it was going to be one episode. But after I just did a little bit of my prep work, I'm like, this will probably be four. Because sometimes in therapy, when someone comes in, right when they start to bring it up, the therapist is like, this is going to take a while. I don't think this is a one-time thing. Right. And so today, as we're together, what we're, it's, I feel like it's another one of those multidimensional, interrelated, complex things. But while we have you here, we want to talk about the interrelated dynamics of the church and Christendom, white supremacy, and religious nationalism. Yeah. So I don't know if you ever thought about those things before. Just a little bit. <laughs> let's, let's assume for this conversation that the listeners at least have grown or have, have somewhat of an understanding of white supremacy. Okay. We know, I, I think there's been a little bit of a shift in the consciousness to whatever degree where people are realizing the main issue with white supremacy in the U.S. is not 
as it's expressed in individual bigotry, right? I don't like you because you're black. You don't like me because I'm white. Although those things are still true, the issue with white supremacy is the atmosphere as a whole and the way in which it's been embedded within institutions and structures and policies and a larger imagination, which has created an entire system that is leveraged against some people and extremely beneficial and built for others, right? So let's assume right. some sort of knowledge there. But okay. with that said, what, let, let's, let's begin by talking about what do you mean when you say Christendom? And then yeah. also what is religious nationalism and why is that an issue for us as the church? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I talk about uh, Christendom, in fact, one of the best ways I, I describe it is to say we're talking about Christian supremacy over society. That's what I'm really mm, talking about when I talk about Christendom. Good. And so from a historical standpoint, I mean, for folks who have even a vague sense of church history, understanding church history, understand that when the church began, um, they had no power over society. In fact, the church was on the margins. Um, in fact, they were made fun of for having so many enslaved people and women, right? Um, that, that was one of the uh, disparaging remarks about the church was uh, who actually made up the church. And so for a very long time... Oh, so you're saying not uh, for having slaves and women because slaves and women were a part of the church. Yeah, they were actually made fun of because slaves and women were a part of the church. Gotcha. Wow. Um, because who would want these stigmatized kinds of people mm. to comprise your 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 membership, right? Mm. And so uh, it it had a way of connecting and finding relevance for people who were on the margins of society, those who were vulnerable, the edges and cracks of society. There was the church, and and to be honest, like it wasn't only folks like that. You also had folks like Cyprian, who was a well-to-do Christian, but who talks about his conversion experience as one where he had to learn to give up wealth and all these greater things to live in solidarity with the church and find new belonging there, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have this uh, really intriguing way in which um, there's solidarity because of a new belonging in Christ that's being found in the church without social power, without political power in society. And then for, uh, over centuries, and a lot of people will focus on Constantine, um, but in some ways it's a lot more complicated than just Constantine, but certainly he symbolizes a shift when he uh, empowers the church, gives advantages to it, um, allows the clergy, you know, exemptions from war and exemptions from taxes and all these things, builds basilicas. And so what begins to happen is that while uh, to be Christian initially took courage and conviction, right? Mm. And then beginning with the age of Constantine, you could actually argue that it took conviction not to become Christian, right? Mm. Because there's advantages to becoming Christian. All of a sudden now you can move up the, la the, the ladder. And so um, you see shifting happening. You see the church begin to move from the margins to the center of society. And then about a hundred years after Constantine, literally uh, Christianity has made the official religion of the land. Mm. Um, and then you go several centuries. I mean, this process was not a one-time quick thing. Over several centuries, that process just continued to codify. So by the time you get to the Crusades, I mean, it's like this thoroughly Christian supremacist society, right, from the top down, structured by policy and practice, culture, myths, narratives, all the way down to then the everyday practices of normal, mm. normal people. Yeah. And so they actually conflated 
uh, what it meant to be Christian with Western civilization by that point, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's a really powerful thing. And what I, I just mentioned this as the relationship between white supremacy and Christian supremacy, or what we call Christendom, is we don't acknowledge often in the church that uh, Christian supremacy literally birthed white supremacy into the world, right? Mm. Um, and so white supremacy is not really, first and foremost, a sociological problem. It's first and foremost a distortion of what it meant to be the church in society wow. and conflating uh, Christianity with Western civilization that gave room for white supremacy. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that knowing that little bit of history of there is this major shift that happens from being a group on the margins who's challenging and subverting the ways of the empire to during that time being integrated into and and co-opted by the empire that is a massive shift for identity understanding what it means to follow jesus and that's right i was going to say this for later but our, the leadership team at our church, Imagine, is reading together Unsettling Truths right now. Oh, yeah. By Mark yeah. Charles and Sunshan Ra. And the right. whole thing is, you know, he does, they do the Constantine chapter, right? So the church, right, fourth century goes from marginalized to now you're a part of the empire. You're not critiquing those who are living large in the castle. You got a new room in the castle. You know, who wants right. to say anything negative here? It's pretty comfortable, actually. That's right. And the whole time we're doing that, especially in 2020 right now, there's always this immediate, but how does that work? What does that look like today? You know, there's this immediate, we see, the, we see different reiterations of this historically of what it looks like for the church to cozy up to the very power that they were subverting and challenging from the beginning. Yeah. Um, let's, so if there's an issue... So we're talking about religious nationalism, Christian supremacy, right? Your newest book is called Who Will Be a Witness? So with yeah. what we just said in mind, one, what is a witness? What are we called to witness to? And why does our culture need witnesses right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, first and foremost, to be a witness is to be a witness to what who God is, what God is doing in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's precisely in a context where Christianity and even our understanding of Jesus has been domesticated, diluted, watered down, whitened, westernized, all of these things, um, that we need a faithful representation and embodiment of what it means to be followers of Jesus in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so it's precisely in the context, in the aftermath of Christian supremacy in the aftermath of white supremacy and colonialism in the aftermath of different uh, attempts at religious nationalism in, in society that we need um, uh, an, an embodied witness on the ground that bears witness to the justice of God, to the love of God, to God's liberating and delivering presence in the world. Um, because truthfully uh, for both in the church and beyond it, the, the name and witness of Jesus, it has been vandalized, right? I mean, literally vandalized. Yeah, I mean, that. Jesus has been made into a mascot for the status quo. Um, and, and so how, mm. what does it mean to take this first century Palestinian Jew living under Roman occupation and turn him into literally the mascot for the empire, right? I mean, it's yeah. deeply problematic. Oh. And so, um, 
there, there's so much work that we've got to do if we're going to be faithful to the actual way of Jesus in the world. And so that's really what my book is about, right? Inviting people into that kind of work, but then thinking about it um, in terms of um, what are strategies, given that we live now in a, at least so-called democratic republic society, but in the aftermath, and I also do a chapter on Christendom and white supremacy and all that as well. Mm. Um, like, what does it mean to live and to seek justice um, in this context, in the midst of the economic exploitation and racial wealth gaps that exist, in the midst of right the coercions and mm. violence that we see all throughout society? How do we yeah. bear witness to uh, the way of Jesus um, now? And so it, it is really for everybody. In some ways, it's first and foremost a wake-up call for the church, For first and foremost. Um, but then also, hopefully, at least that we can bear witness to it, have a credible uh uh, witness and embodiments of the way of Jesus in the world. Mm, yeah. Let's go back to religious nationalism. You know, we can look at things historically and say, okay, the church goes from this subversive community challenging empire to being co-opted by the empire. And now it's a part of it. Basically it's now yeah. helping perpetuate the very thing it once was resisting. People are like, okay, that kind of makes sense. You know, we can see movies where these things happen we jump ahead to 2020 right now. What does religious nationalism look like concretely? Like let's, let's, let's add some teeth to this. Let's put some feet on the ground for people asking, what does religious nationalism look like for some Christians today? How do we spot it? And why is it problematic for our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God to, to be people who are a part of and participate in religious nationalism? Yeah, and I think actually identity is actually a really good starting point to think through this, um, to use that word, because as I mentioned before, like, so the early Christians, there's a, a historian, he talks about how early Christians, one of the things that you see is this kind of comprehensive conversion process that shaped mm. people's belief, behavior, and belonging, right? Mm. Um, so a lot of times we think about Christians in terms of just beliefs, right? Yeah. We could talk about yeah. what beliefs, but nonetheless, we yeah. can, I think we're tuned to at least be aware of the, of the idea that there's certain beliefs that go along with Christianity. Um, we're less attuned to the kind of comprehensive way in which behavior was was changed and converted, and also one sense of belonging was converted, right? To, to belong in Christ actually in some ways you could say both to be called out and then stitched right back into the world, right? With this mm, new yeah. sense of identity in the world. And so I think that um, with religious nationalism, one of the first things that happens is that your primary identity is with the nation states, right? Mm. Um, it's not um, a counter witness to the world of what God is doing and what God ultimately wants to lead all of creation into Shalom, but it's more with the nation state as it is it's militarism, it's economic, you know, commitments in terms of structure, all these things that, that those are the primary commitments. It, what's most sacred is the constitution, the declaration of independence. Those are the sacred documents, right? Mm. Um, the sacred people are the founding fathers, right? I mean, that's a particular way of thinking that, that the nation state story literally becomes and subsumes your own story. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first starting point for one's sense of identity. And then the religious part of that is then uh, when, we, when we throw and uh, merge and converge God into that, right? So even the language of God and country um, that we hear sometimes in the U.S., um, certainly signifies the kind of desires that really are rooted in Christendom in terms of this desire to have 
control over society, to coercively legislate Christianity from the top down, mm-hmm. um, and to to see God's to identify America um, as God's nation, as God's chosen people, as as the innocent ones, as God's you know the millennial nation that's going to bring us to you know wherever. All these things are just different ways at in which religion and nationalism have been converged in one another. And so really um, in the words of who is it? Uh, Michael Ray Matthews, he talks, he's an organizer and he talks about, you know, are you um, a chaplain to the empire or a prophet of the resistance? Right. Absolutely. Um, and religious nationalism wants us to be a chaplain for the empire, literally mm. to just bless everything that the empire is doing um, if it is, it's in the name military. of the very one who was resisting that empire the, in the that's beginning. Right. That's right. In the very beginning. That's right. Uh, you can only do it if you actually, you have to literally marginalize the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, you can, you can, Absolutely. you can still grab little pieces, right? Like a buffet from it. You can quote John three sixteen, but you can't actually be submerged in the story of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, his birth, his life, his teachings, death, and resurrection in any kind of significant way and come out as a religious nationalist. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's really possible to take that seriously, to do oh, that man. and also be a religious nationalist because then you identify with the crucified rather than the crucifiers, right? Oh, um, and it's yeah. a different vantage point for seeing and thinking through the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, let me, I'm going to take a deep breath because I'm going to throw this mic at the wall for a sec. Hold on a sec. Um, Okay, that brings up something. Kelly Brown Douglas, mm. womanist theologian, one of the people, one of my favorite theologians ever, back when, right around the time when you and I first connected, or even a little bit before 10 years ago, her book, The Black Christ, mm. then uh, What's Faith Got to Do With It? I think it was like Black Souls and Christian Bodies, or maybe it was Black Bodies, Christian Souls was a subtitle. And one of the things that she said about the creeds, which I think is sort of getting at what you're saying right now about the only way to use Jesus as a mascot or a a person who holds up the status quo of the empire is to truly ignore and marginalize the Jesus on those dusty roads concretely we see in the gospels. And she, man, her work on the creeds has always stayed with me. Because she says the creeds, right, the first documents of belief that have shaped us from they've established these sort of riverbanks that we've all been flowing within forever. Are the creeds all bad? Of course not. But when she looks at them, she says the creeds are primarily metaphysical, right? This is what we believe about who Jesus is. Jesus is divine. Jesus has been crucified, right? All these things that are part of a central part of the story. But she says you can basically believe and articulate every single part of those creeds and still hold on to your white supremacy and still use that Jesus to uphold the empire because the creeds don't say anything about the flesh and blood Jesus who's whose essential part of his identity was identifying with the marginalized and his solidarity with the oppressed right I think she right. she just you know, as, as I was doing narrative theology, I'm like the creeds and the great story, which I love, but she was just filling in like, here's how you fill that in. And her, her critiques were so good. Here's my yeah. follow-up question to that. With that said, 
where do you see the revolutionary status quo challenging Jesus who speaks truth to power and challenges the empire in the gospels? Because if someone has been trained only to see the individual Jesus who dies for their sins so they can go to heaven after their life, they, they, they don't have yet the eyes to see that socially disruptive Jesus that we believe in and follow. So where do you see, what are some of those primary stories? Tell us about that Jesus. Yeah. I mean, they're all over the place. In fact, there was a time where I used to see it primarily. I mean, you, the, the favorite one that most people go to is Luke. Cause it's so obvious, right? Luke just like flips everything on its head and he won't, he won't let you miss it. Right. Um, mm. Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. Right. Blessed are those who are hungry. Now woe to you who are filled. Now he won't let you miss the subversiveness of it. He, um, the first are last and the last are first from beginning to end of Luke. He has a vicious economic critique. I always think it's funny right now. Um, there's a lot of, I think just a couple, uh, two weeks ago, I got called a Marxist. Right. Um, and it's funny because I'm like, you know, I've never read Marx. I'm definitely not a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, if clearly these uh, people who are saying this aren't reading their gospel of Luke because he just mm-hmm. has a vicious class consciousness and he just mm. relentlessly um, critiques and challenges the wealthy and shows, demonstrates solidarity with the poor, right? Just over and over again in a whole variety of ways. We see it. The Zacchaeus story is a beautiful, powerful story where uh, I, I joke that um, we, we intentionally uh, misteach the, the Zacchaeus story by teaching them the song that takes out the punchline of the whole story, right? Mm. And this cute little song about Zacchaeus climbing a tree, um, and he has this Jesus moment, but then nothing significant happens afterwards. But in the actual account, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, and he's been a tax collector that's been exploiting his own neighbors. And his Jesus encounter leads to him saying, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor, which is radical redistribution of wealth. And then he says, I'm going to give four times back what I've, what I've uh, exploited from people, right? Wow, yeah. Four times, which is reparations. <laughs> and not just reparations from a calculated sense, beyond and above what he had taken. Um, mm. And so you think about just the jubilee ethics throughout the Gospel of Luke's over and over and over again, radical, right? But it goes way beyond that. I mean, you, you read um, Matthew. Matthew. Matthew is like the activist's like dream, right? I mean, so where Luke is focusing on the social conditions of the poor, blessed are the poor, and things like that, um, Matthew has this attentive to praxis and our disposition in the world towards God's kingdom. And so there it's blessed are the poor in spirits, blessed are the peacemakers, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which he's talking about justice, setting things right in the world. Um, It's a disposition and a posture of praxis in the world, right? Mm. Um, Which calls us to live and embody this out, the way of Jesus and and the teachings of Jesus in our very lives, Um, inviting us to be peacemakers in the world. And so um, through teachings all throughout from the Sermon on the Mount onward, as well as just some of the most vicious critiques on status quo religiosity come out of the gospel of Matthew, right? Woe to you uh, who um, tithe mint, dill, and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, Mm. mercy, and faithfulness, right? Um, He's like, you're tithing uh, windowsill plants, but you miss the heart of it, right? Which is justice. You're majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. Yeah. You got Mark. I, 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 for a long time, didn't realize how radical Mark was, right? 
Um, and then you start reading um, scholars like Ched Myers who mm. bring out just such great insights into uh, what, what's going on there. You miss some of the symbolism that's deeply embedded in. And you think about like the metaphor that Jesus uses. I love when he talks about um, breaking into this house and binding the strong man and plundering his goods. And Jesus is the one who described himself in illegal terms. He's the one breaking in, binding the strong man and plundering his goods, right? Redeeming us from captivity in this world. Mm. And so he's a, it's this subversive uh, response to the captivity that we're under. Um, and there's so much anti-Roman um, symbolism embedded in the gospel of Mark. That's just really radical. In some ways yeah. you could argue that it's not, not as obvious for 21st century American ears, but it might be the most radical of the gospels. If you really, once you begin to really understand the context it was written in. Um, and then even the gospel of John, which sometimes gets overly spiritualized and all of a sudden you have, um, I mean, it actually wants us to be attentive to the body and to the attentiveness mm. to flesh, right? And mm. God joining and dwelling amongst us bodily, right? And that that actually matters. And that how we live then in response um, actually matters in the sense that, I mean, it was it John 18, you know, if, if my people uh, were of this world, they'd be, you know, they'd be fighting against the kingdom just like everybody else. I forget how he says it, but, but it's this radical way in which the, the people of God in the reign of God actually embody and responds to the violence and oppression in a different way than the rest of society does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so this imagination um, from heaven that has come to earth and invites us to a new way of living in the world. All of them are radical, and we could go on and on in a whole bunch yeah, of different yeah, ways, right? Yeah. But they all are radical in a whole variety of ways for us. Uh, yes. Once you can see that, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. That's why I want to ask you, where is the revolutionary Jesus in the Gospels? Like you can I'm like, where is he first. not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I almost feel like I could, I could talk all week on this. <laughs> but here, and I'm with you know I'm with you on that, but... What, what has happened and what continues to happen is the radical social acts of Jesus are always then interpreted, interpreted through an individualistic, pietistic, moral lens. So it's like what you see, Dr. Drew, as a radical social act, right. the, every sermon we've ever heard is this always gets translated into like, but this is just some like blessed are the poor. Well, it's like I I I'm poor. It's I need to hearts. like. I, right. It's everything. I'm poor in my heart, so the I'm good. <laughs> the radical social acts all gets translated through this individualistic filter, where everything's personalized and spiritualized about my individual heart. So, yep. how do you, as a professor, as a pastor, as a preacher, help some people have those eyes to see and make that transition from? All of these things aren't just, it is about those things. Of course, the spirit of God is going to dwell within, transform you. That individual part of the journey is central to this whole thing, but it's also to fill it in. It is social. It is radical. It is that. How do you, where do you see some of those awakening aha moments where people start to get that? And then where then, then their lenses change so they can see it everywhere. Yeah, so let's go back to the Gospel of Luke again, right? So I think one of the ways, one of the texts that I've heard um, really domesticated in this kind of way would be 
the the foil version of the Zacchaeus story, which is the rich young ruler, right? So rich young ruler mm. comes to Jesus. Um, he's apparently he's been following the law, except for one thing, for according to Jesus, right? And that's that um, he needs to now sell all his possessions, give them to the poor, and then come follow him, right? Mm. Now, what I've heard people say. Oh, yeah, Jesus didn't really want him to give it to the poor. That's not what really mattered. It was just a heart issue. And so long as his heart was in the right place, it's not really about wealth. It's not all the stuff. We just have to be in the right place with our hearts. And all I can say is, I mean, you could, in that sense, you could dismiss anything Jesus says um, and just call it a heart issue. And so our lives don't have to change. Our behavior doesn't have to change. So long as we can claim a heart issue and then living the same old status quo lies that we've always lived. Mm. Um, The other option would be is to actually take Jesus seriously and not treat him like our crazy uncle at our family gatherings, right? You know, Mm. we all have that one family member that just says off the wild stuff, off the, you know, buck wild stuff and and nobody takes him that seriously. That's just uncle so-and-so, right? He's just going to say that kind of thing. And that's how we treat Jesus, right? Oh, that's just, Mm. he didn't really mean what he says, right? Well, what if he actually did actually mean, and what if we read the gospel of Luke from beginning to end and see that, that it's just, it's just overflowing with a, a jubilee ethic of economics uh, uh, from beginning to end. And that if we actually take him seriously, then we can't isolate this one random verse and say, Jesus doesn't mean, and it's only about our heart issue but that he actually wants comprehensive change of how we live in the world. That it's about God's dream for us, right? Mm. Uh, God's reign and God's new society and, and that everything um, ought to be uh, yielded to, this, to the preeminence of Christ. Mm. Um, and I think that when we have that, the preeminence of Christ as the, the <clears throat> forefront of our ethics that implies everything and all of creation, and we have a theology of shalom, which is not individualistic, but it it, it suggests that all of creation um, is bound up in life and that our harmony is tied together. Our liberation is tied together. Our peace is tied together. Mm. Um, this is the, the biblical vision, right, that we're given of what God desires for us. Um, these things can't be done as lone rangers, as individualists, and you can't embody shalom in your heart it has to be manifested fully it can, you can experience peace in your heart but but for shalom to happen it's going to be uh, communities uh flourishing right um experiencing justice and peace and righteousness like god desires and calls us to yeah man that is so good let's uh with 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 those three interrelated dynamics we began with in mind so we talked about the religious supremacy or yeah, religious supremacy, religious nationalism and white supremacy, right? These are these broader kind of bigger picture issues as the churches in therapy today. Those are the things we're working through. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's take a turn with those things in mind. Let's think about the unique cultural moment that we're in with the coronavirus, this post-George Floyd uprising, protests, public demonstrations. Let's think about this moment as being apocalyptic for a sec. Yeah. And I don't mean apocalyptic as people right. who immediately are like, oh right. my gosh, crazy things are happening in, in America. Right. That means the world must be ending, right? That's not what I mean right. I'm talking about the apocalypse. Right. The but unveiling. About, exactly. Apocalypse, apocalypse as the original word meant of unveiling or revealing, right? Right. 
So if see, that's why people listening, you see how this, the doctor, the PhD, he knew where I was going with this. He didn't even give me a chance to finish. He he already skipped (laughs) ahead. He he took my thunder, right? What what, what it was. (laughs) But if this moment truly is unveiling and revealing, what would you say is being revealed or unveiled about the United States right now? Or what is being revealed or unveiled about the church in the United States right now? Yeah, um, I I'll, think give, I'll give you. I'll give you. I'll give you thirty minutes for the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. We'll just hit a couple things, but I think let's see for for the nation first. Um, I think what we're seeing is what's the curtain is being pulled back on the economic structure mm. of our society <clears throat> and the white supremacist structure of our society mm. and the selfishness and in some ways you could say distorted sense of freedom in America as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think those are some of the big things we could get on some other things, but so um, economic, I mean, I think we're seeing that uh, despite how essential so many people are in terms of um, our livelihood, um, many workers especially those who right now are on the front lines are paid minimum wage. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, and yet they're right now considered essential workers in some cases, right. many of them. Right. Um, and they're actually risking their lives or have been risking. And in fact, often many of those folks are folks in those communities, particularly poor communities, black and brown communities have disproportionately been impacted by uh, coronavirus as well. And mm. so we see that the economic structure doesn't actually value the people who are doing the labor. uh, We don't actually have, uh, we don't see the dignity in all labor. Mm. We devalue the labor of, of many workers and, and people are living in poverty and not because it's inevitable, but because of how we structured our economy, right. In such a way that leave people to be disposable um, in our society. And so I think that that's the first thing that we're seeing is just the economic structure and that there's going to have to be, we're going to have to come to a point where like, as Dr. King says it, we're going to have to have a a revolution of values where we begin to move from a thing oriented society to a people oriented society. Right. And until we can actually make that change, I think that we're going to continue to devalue people and the labor that they provide and instead um, um, structure everything around the wealthy and multinational corporations and things like that. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that our middle class is shrinking. Um, Poverty is, I mean, it's as severe as it ever has been in recent years. and, Mm. And I think that people are beginning to see that radical interventions are going to be needed for everyone to thrive and flourish Mm. as it is. The other thing I said was race, as I already mentioned, was we're seeing that um, black and brown people are disproportionately being um, killed by the coronavirus because they're in vulnerable communities as it is already um, and have less health care and all kinds of, I mean, there's a whole variety of reasons for that. Mm. But then also then um, we've been also more attentive to the police killings, right? Because I think people have been connected online more than normal. And so um, um, the capacity for these stories to go viral have actually increased at least temporarily they had. Mm. And so I think that's, um, it's exposed uh, 
the violence and against this both disposability of blackness in our moments mm. as well, right? That black people's lives are, are not valued, mm. um, that people have not cared. Um, but then also that there's a shift that's happening as people are becoming aware that some people are mm. responding, other people are still uh, responding with apathy. But no, nonetheless, we're seeing uh, unveiling of how yeah. white supremacy is, is shaping our society today. And then the last thing I would say is well, I want to before the church. I want to cut you off yeah. for a sec. Yeah, During yeah, this yeah. whole thing, I kind of laugh and I'm hopeful, and a part of me skeptical at moments. And then I just trip out on certain things. I'm like, damn, this is like the new vocabulary phrase of 2020 is systemic racism. Oh, right. I was like, right. wow, like you know, right. I'm kind of like, damn, I never heard so many people outside of like grad school settings. You like don't hear right. that. You never really heard that. Now, systemic I wish racism and white supremacy yeah. have become way more mainstream. Yeah, I always wish that a lot of people who said systemic racism would go one step further and say institutionalized white supremacy. But it's a good, yeah. it's obviously a good, it's an it's an amazing step. And yeah. I've kind of been watching that, and sometimes I laugh. We're like friends family, whoever it is, is talking about things, you know, systems of mass incarceration, redlining, the history of how ghettos aren't just, it's not, how ghetto isn't just a cultural term we use to right. describe things normally associated with blackness or hip hop, but ghettos are geopolitical created spaces, right? By these That's systems, right. by the, all that stuff, right? That's right. And a part of me, and this is just me personally, I'm like, they're like, can you believe it? I'm like, yeah. I was I was telling you 10 years ago and no one wanted to hear nothing I <laughs> That's said. <right>. That's right. <laughs> like when you and I first met, I'm like, it was like when I would see friends, like, oh man, like have you seen the 13th Amendment? And I'm like, no, but I can tell you the history of that because no one was listening to me when I was by myself, like doing this 10 That's years right. ago. That's right. But at the same time, like to see that shift in the broader cultural consciousness. Cause even when I look at corporations, something like a Nike or other things, I'm like, Whoa, there's enough culture. There has been enough of a shift and there's enough power with the people who are saying these things. Right. And, and are helping create this shift. I'm like, a lot of these corporations, they're not doing it from my perspective, saying black lives matter and doing these things because all of the sudden they're the most socially conscious people, but they know it's bad for their brand if they don't say something. So while their intentions might be mixed, I'm like, that says something about where the culture is because they know if they're not on that wave right now, it's going to hurt them, which says something powerful about where this, the cultural consciousness is when it comes to that. So, you know, it's always mixed. It's light and dark, all that, but it's just such a fascinating, time to think to see all of that uh so unveiling with the with the culture as a whole united states now what is being revealed or unveiled with the church in the united states of america in this apocalyptic moment yeah um i think one of the things is so um my friend rod thomas he um he gave an analogy i'll give him credit for it um he talked about how, so if you remember the scene in Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire. I don't think where, I've ever seen any of those movies. Okay, you never, well, there's <laughs> a scene, I'll describe it. There's I've a scene also where, tell people I've never seen any of the Star Wars movies either, so. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's walking down the street. He actually, he gets um, like this venom from 
you know, another thing gets on him. And so it changes his personality. Mm. So now he's kind of like, there's this kind of like confidence that he has, but he's kind of like um, harmful, like toxic, you know what I mean? In terms of how he treats other people, but he's like super confident now. So there's a scene where he, He's got like music in his head. He's almost like dancing down the street. He's pointing at people, at women and things like that, strolling through. And so he's feeling great, but everybody else is like looking at him like, ew, like what's wrong with you? Like something's off, you know what I mean? And I think um, in some ways that like is perfectly uh, a great representation of the church, I think too often, right? Mm. That everybody can see our mess but us, I think, you know, um, that there's this kind of sense of triumphalism in the church. And we think, oh, we're the saviors and we got the answers and Jesus is the way and things like that and all that kind of stuff. And we're walking down the street, feeling really confident, pointing our fingers, strutting down through society. And everybody else is like, ew, what's wrong with this? Right. Because we don't see, we don't recognize that we're the ones that we're the toxic ones, right? Mm. Um, and I think that uh, for too long, because, and this gets back to the whole point around the history of Christian supremacy in society, the history of white supremacy, the ways that people are still desired uh, religious nationalism in our society today too often, um, that all these things in different, they've mutated all in different ways in the 21st century, but they're alive or their desire for those things to recover are still around. And, mm-hmm. and I think most people see that and are disgusted by it, honestly. And we're the only ones that don't, we, 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 we're not looking in the mirror. There's deep denial too often in the church. Um, and so we, we imagine ourselves as one thing and we're something completely different in the, in actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we're at a moment where some people in the church are beginning to look into the mirror mm-hmm. and see that now the response can, is, can be a mix, right? Some people it's, I'm done with this institution. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with these people and I, I don't have anything to do with it. Right. Yeah. But for others, I think, and especially, I mean, for me, I always tell people, um, it's easy to walk away with it if you think that the uh, domesticated, westernized, white inversion of it is the, the legitimate version of Christianity. But if you remember that Western Christianity is, is like Christianity is not indigenous to the West, number one, right, mm. which people forget. Um, but more so, um, there are Christian traditions that were born on the underside of all of this, right? Mm. Uh, you think about Frederick Douglass who said, there's true Christianity and there's the Christianity of this land. Mm. And to be a friend of one is to be an enemy of the other. And he goes on and says, wow. how I love the, the true, peaceable, loving Christ, you know, of, this, of Christianity. And, and therefore I hate the slaveholding, woman whipping, uh, cradle robbing Christianity of this land, right? Yeah. And I think wow. that um, what we're reminded is that there are other traditions where people encountered the delivering presence of Jesus in the world and saw him to be a liberator and a friend in hard times, a co-sufferer, right? Um, that that's a, a Jesus that led us to to fight for justice, to for justice, and to live in solidarity with those who are most vulnerable in our communities. Mm. And so there are other Christianities, and I would say I would say faithful ones, right? Mm. Um, that we're invited to to learn from and to draw from and to. Uh, in, to draw our formation from um, that can actually help us embody more faithful ways 
of seeking God, encountering God, and bear witness to what God is doing in the world. Yeah, I love that. Even that answer is so good because anytime there's a critique, it's always for the sake of breaking through so we can be more faithful. You know, for people who see any internal critique, which is what you do when you love something, right? You only critique what you right. love. I always tell people, I never criticize anybody's golf swing because I don't care. I don't even think about right. it, you know? But right. we critique. You can do whatever you want, right. <laughs> uh, I've seen Charles Barkley swing. I'm like, it's cool, dude. Do it the way you do it. That's right. But like you critique what you love because we still desire. Because I still believe when the church shines, that there's nothing like her in the whole universe. So the critique, while it can sound harsh to some ears who I think aren't ready yet to see the truth and look in the mirror, like, no, we do this because we desire more and we want her to become more of who God has created her to be. And those, and that answer so clearly articulates that. You always hope people can truly hear that. Yeah. Okay, here is, because uh, I really would love to hear what you have to say about this. So we think about, the church in power think about it right now going into an election season the church since we talked about the empire religious nationalism so often you see christian leaders cozying up to power i would say fighting for spaces at tables they should be flipping over Right. right. Sometimes we're a little too comfortable sitting at tables that might be the very tables that symbolically represent the ones Jesus spent his life turning over. Right. right. So I'm sure you, I hope that you've seen some of these things on the news over the past few months or whenever it was. When you see evangelical or Christian leaders in the church bragging about how much access they have to the president or this is when I want to just get a little extra spicy right at the end since we're coming to the end. Or when you see these worship leaders and pastors with the president, you know, talking about how much access they have, saying how great it is to sing songs of worship in the White House. And they're saying, man, we got to pray for the president. And you see photos of one particular, one of, one of these worship leaders with his arm out, grabbing the arm the, with his hand grabbing the arm of the president in a photo as if there's some magical power emanating from the president or something like that. That's I'm reading into it right now. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah. when you see that, as we think about power, as we think about all of this, what do you see when you see that? What do you feel? What do you think? What do you see when you see that rhetoric and look how amazing this is right now? Um, I mean, I, I see, uh, to use the language I used earlier, the, the vandalizing of the name of Jesus, right? Mm. First and foremost, because it is taking the radical reign of God, which Jesus embodied, implanted, inaugurated, and preached, which was a counter witness and literally was born under the, the very nose of the empire, under the nose of Caesar, he claimed to be Lord, right? Mm. Um, uh, he, he preached a different kingdom in the midst of living under Roman powers. I mean, that's radical and subversive and that alone can get you killed. Yeah, right. And it did. Um, and, the, and did. Right. <laughs> that's what and happened. did get him killed. <laughs> and the early Christians also uh, after that were, I mean, to apply lordship to Jesus was an intentional political move to suggest that Caesar was not. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. the fact that we know, 
uh, from a historical standpoint that Christians got themselves in trouble because they did not engage and participate in the imperial cults, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That they would not uh, intertwine and intermix uh, empire with Christianity. It's an embarrassment, honestly, for us today to see Christians trying to cozy up with Caesar. I mean, it just Mm -hmm. makes no sense. Um, to bow down at Nebuchadnezzar's statue. It just makes no sense to see that. Um, And so we've lost all sense of our identity and ethical orientation as it relates to empires and nation states uh, when we see the goal as becoming the nation state, running the the nation state, giving hugs to Caesar rather than having a prophetic witness, right? We, we don't understand what it, the in prophetic witness of Jesus, the way that he, when he goes to Jerusalem, I mean, it's interesting, most of the time he's in Galilee, right? Mm. And the moment he heads, uh, particularly Mark and, and Luke help us see it best, like he heads towards Jerusalem. And from that point on, it's like, look, I'm going it's there on. and yep. I'm going to clash yep. and they're going to kill me. Yep. Like that's, that's the story. And then he goes in and I, I love the gospel of Mark. I mean, it's, it's the most subversive because Jesus goes in, he does a recon mission in gospel of Mark, checks it out and realizes it's not the right time, leaves and then comes back the next morning. Then he flips mm-hmm. tables, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and he quotes Jeremiah seven, one of the prophets, um, no, you den of robbers. He's quoting Jeremiah 7, where they have been harming the most vulnerable and thinking that that because they were uh, religious and the part of the temple, they say, we, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they think they're untouchable because they're people of God. It doesn't matter. We can have all this power. We can participate in exploitation. It doesn't matter because we worship God, right? And that's what God really matters. It's, it's our heart is in the right place. Right? Yeah, no, it's a heart. Well, it's a heart issue. Right, it's a heart <laughs> issue. It. Um, it doesn't matter how we treat the vulnerable in our midst, as long as it's a mm-hmm. heart issue. And so Jesus quotes that as he flips tables and as he mm-hmm. condemns the practices that are the flow of currents, um, the the uh, marketplace, the money that's being moving around. In fact, one of the things that we see is uh, in a couple of the gospels is he points them afterwards. He he shows what's happening all around. He's like, look, he has them huddle up his disciples. And he's like, look, you see this poor widow given her last little mites, right? Worth a penny. And you have all these people giving out of their abundance, but it's really nothing. And what's interesting is just before that, he says his critique on the temple was that they, one of the things he, is that they devour widows' homes. We often mm-hmm. don't connect the two points, but they're right wow. beside each other. They devour widows' homes. So you have this institution, like on one hand, it's a, a celebration of this widow who is willing to sacrifice everything, but it's also a critique on the religious institution that was supposed to care for the widows and the orphans and are willing to take everything from them, right? Everything from them. And so there's a lament there. And so I think that us, the we too, ought to join in Jesus' laments in response to Mm. just the overwhelming um, just domestication and twisting of Jesus' mission and purpose in this world. Um, It's not a delivering presence of God anymore. When you're cozying up with a made make America great again campaign, um, then you're tied up with the empire and the, wow. the purposes of the empire and have lost sight of God's desires for the church and for all of creation. Yeah. Cozying up to Caesar and bowing down before the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Come on. You know, what's so striking to me about that whole kind of situation that we're talking about 
uh, with the people in the White House and all that is when you, you know, there's videos of them singing in there, right? So, you know, they're singing worship songs in there. Right. And as I listened to the lyrics, I went, because I was, you know, doing these episodes on Trump. So I kind of went back and was watching this more. Yeah. And I'm like, what they're singing is, I just want you to Jesus, right? So that's their words. So I'm hearing these people sing, I just want you. I just want you, Jesus. And my question when I heard that is when they say, I just want you, Jesus, I'm like, but do you want what Jesus wants? Right. Right. Jesus if it's just a heart, the whole just, kingdom. When people say, I just, it's just about Jesus. So often when people do that, it's a negation of the responsibility to listen closely to the things that Jesus wants. Because that's so clear yes, as a church, you can be, when we say we're just about Jesus, right? Which to me is just a blanket. I don't really want to deal with real life, but I'm like, you can right. be all about Jesus, but not about what Jesus is about. That's right. So it's like, I just want Jesus. I'm like, but do you want what he wants? Like, that's right. the thing you're coming to Jesus and he keeps pointing you to the edges. He keeps pointing you to the margins. And that to me was such a strike, those lyrics, and then all yeah. those quotes about, you know, you, the singing, but if you neglect justice and mercy, I'm like, this just keeps cycling back into different historical social moments over and over. And it's always fascinating how hard it is to have the eyes to see when it's happening in the moment, right? The very people who can look back and be like, the Pharisees, and they're doing this, but we fail to have those humble eyes to see the way in which it's possible to be captivated by Caesar and the empire in any moment. That's I'm going to, yeah. with all of that said, which by the way is so good, man, I appreciate you doing this. I'm going to say that one last time. This is such, such good stuff. Who will be a witness coming out September 1st, Dr. Hart's second book. Um, man, this is just so good. <clears throat> so with all that said, here's my last question I'm going to ask you. You have, right, as a follower of Jesus, a husband, a father, uh, a pastor, a professor, a preacher, as a socially conscious black man in the United States of America who can see so much of this with clarity, which so often seeing the things that you can see can lead to despair and can lead to feelings of hopelessness or helplessness or powerlessness or frustration or anger and all the different ways it mutates. What, what brings you hope in 2020 in your life with all of that said, what brings you hope? Where does that deep energy to keep going come from? What, what, what is hope? What is those, what are those moments for you? Yeah, for me, I think my hope is number one. I think I I I think about hope more as a practice than as um like than like you know the wishful thinking for something right or the, the I hope this happens, but it's it's something that you embody and that you live. And for me, it's seeing other people embody the hope of the world to embody that or for me to embody that and for that to be contagious. Mm. And so what I see that gives me hope and allows me to live hope is 
the underside of, of all the mess that's going on. And I always tell people, so I live like in a poor black and brown community. And sometimes, you know, people are like, oh man, all white people, man, they're all racist. And, uh, and I like, I get why folks, I get why people say that because I mean, that's all they're seeing, right? It's just, it's just a mess, right? But I'm like, I'm like, the cool thing is that I get is, I get to like, I've been for the last several years, like I get invited to like churches that are like, awakening mm. for the very first time, having hard conversations about white supremacy and their own, you know, um, uh, com- uh, complicity in it all. Right. Mm. Um, and repentance in response to it and trying to seek out like what it means to be faithful. Like I'm se- like, I, I've seen it over and over and over again. So like, while the, the big story nationally is, Oh, all these white evangelicals, they're all racist and 80% vote for Trump. Yes, that's true, right? <laughs> but also is true is there's this other thing happening on the ground. Mm. Um, there's actual communities that are awakening, that are taking their serious their faith seriously, and it's leading them to solidarity with the oppressed. It's leading them yeah. to fight for justice. It's leading them to speak up, right? Um, and it's leading them, some of them, to really challenging shifts as Christian communities as well in terms of what they do, how they gather their own sense of belonging. And so for me, that I see that and that gives me hope. And I, then I try to embody that hope. And I know on the ground in our community, I collaborate with um, I'm part of this, a co-leader for a relational network of Christian leaders in ecumenically gathering together to pursue justice, collaborate with faith-based organizers and activists so in our good. city. Like and that gives me hope, right? Participating yeah. in that, seeing that uh, on the grounds, the even the just the little wins that we have, yeah. um, that all gives me hope. And so it's that on the ground embodied stuff that I think that is meaningful for me, and that sustains me in my work, knowing that God is at work. God is not dead. God has not abandoned us, but He's God yeah. is here. God is present. God is active, and we can join in with that work. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think for the long term, not the beginning of your faith, like novelty, excitement, I'm on fire. But how do you continue to cultivate that flame 10, 15 years in, especially when you're thinking deeply and, and practicing working towards justice? And, you know, when people ask, why do you believe in the resurrection? You know, one of those great answers is because we just keep seeing it happening around us. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, even how do you sustain hope? It's because you're around people doing hopeful things. I think as academics and as head people, it's easy to be like, let me just figure this out in my mind of why I can be hopeful and then do that. When in reality, it's actually what you're saying, even in those small spaces, just like Jesus talked about doing the hopeful things actually makes you hopeful. I think that's, that's what you're saying is it always moves from the paper, from the words to flesh and actually practicing it. So I'm so glad you landed with that answer because it's that incarnational love. And you're like, man, no matter what's going on, I'm around five to seven people who are doing hopeful things. And that actually, that's hope. That's the resurrection. That's where the energy is at. So I appreciate that. Your kids just came in. They said, dad, you're done. We got things to do. We're over this conversation. Take the headphones off. I can always hear my in the other room yelling and screaming and laughing too. So one more time, September 1st, Dr. Hart's book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Sort of the, the content of that book we just got a glimpse of today. You feel the energy of it. So please go get that. 
Drew, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate this so much. We will stay in touch. And uh, yeah, blessings to you on the, the Zoom teaching this semester, man. Oh, thank you, Kevin. This has been good. We definitely got to stay in, in connection. Yep. All right, man. Thanks so much. Yep. Peace.